episode 352, some big, actionable surprises about the efficacy and effectiveness of specialty pharmaceuticals. Today, I speak with Promode John. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. As a country, we spend approximately $500 billion on prescription drugs. Specialty drugs account for less than 2% of prescriptions, but will cost us over $250 billion. That's in 2021. So 2% of prescriptions, but half the spend. Specialty is the fastest growing segment of healthcare spend and is a dominant issue that self-funded employers and other purchasers face. But let's dig into that $250 billion being spent on specialty drugs, shall we? I have to say, personally, that if we spent $250 billion but saved more than that in medical costs or if the patient quality of life went up measurably or if life expectancy or overall survival or whatever metric you use to assess quality, like if that big spend produced even bigger returns slash results, I for one would be like, okay, trade-offs, let's discuss. But the thing is, clinical trials and real-world evidence alike suggest that there's a lot of patients who don't really benefit from the expensive drugs that they are taking or were prescribed. And even those who benefit might not get the results that they're hoping for or even like de minimis expecting. Today, I am talking with Pramod John, CEO of Vivio Health, and he makes a couple of great points about all of this that I'll repeat here and then he's going to say them again later in this episode, but in context and probably better. (laughs) There was some research done that showed for a really popular, really expensive drug, only 2% of patients who took it got the expected, maybe promised benefits. But 100% of the patients who took that drug got bad, in some cases dangerously bad, diarrhea. This situation is really kind of typical. A drug will work great for some people, mediocre for other people slash patients, and not at all for, say, the remaining what might be majority of patients. So you'll have like two patients where the results are out of the park, 23 patients where results are pretty darn good, 25 patients reporting meh results, but something you can actually still point to, and then maybe like 50 patients who see absolutely no improvement in anything. So here's an important point. Maybe there's, let's just say, three drugs or 10 drugs in this therapeutic category. And that same patient distribution is true for all of them, except different drugs may work for different people. So by enabling access to all the drugs, you can see that patients have a better chance of being in one of those first groups where they actually get results because there's more drugs that they can try and different drugs work differently in different people. But now let's consider the way that we pay for specialty drugs. One or two of them get on formulary typically, and then all the others are excluded. That said, the purchaser, patient, and or taxpayer is going to pay a whole lot of money for those drugs, regardless of how well they do or do not work. And with fewer drugs on formulary, there's less of a chance that result gold will be struck. But we're going to pay a whole lot of money also in terms of human life to deal with the direct and cascading side effects 
of drugs, whether they do or don't work. I have to admit, I kind of have a new appreciation for so-called Me Too drugs after this conversation. Let me just add that here for the record. My guest today and next week is Pramod John, who is the founder and CEO over at Vivio Health. Vivio contracts with self-insured employers and helps their employees slash members slash patients, whatever you call them, get the right drug. They actually expand access and the employer saves money. After what I just said, you might be cottoning on to why. The show this week concerns the reality of specialty drugs and what the terms efficacy and effectiveness really mean. Because they might not mean what you think they mean. As inconceivable as that might feel, I learned something, you might too. And there are implications, big implications, for all of this for patients slash members slash employees, or you and your family. Today, we also define and discuss the terms NNT, number needed to treat, and NNH, number needed to harm, which are really important and, in my humble opinion, do not get discussed enough, especially with patients who need to know these things to make informed choices. Next week's show is also with Promote John, and we get into how what we talk about today intersects with rebates and formularies. Come back for that. It's probably a 400-level class in specialty pharmacy rebating, but some of you will appreciate it. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Promote John, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be back on the show. So let me dig into something that you've said. Pharmaceutical products are packaged technology and therefore can deliver scientifically consistent data. You do hear all kinds of reports about how the results of a pharmaceutical product vary wildly across patients, patient populations. If we're just starting at the very beginning here, you know, what does a good response mean? It's interesting because you brought up sort of almost like this, hey, if it's science, and now there's this variation of response, is that what we should expect? And the answer to that is yes. The reason for that is that when you look at most things, it doesn't matter whether it's technology or anything, different people get different utility out of something. So you can imagine in the same way that when drugs come to market, while we would like for them to have the same utility for all people, in real life, we find that that's rarely the case. So then how do we define utility in the case of drugs? The word that you've probably heard over and over again is efficacy, because everybody uses that word. One of the things that I discovered a few years ago was that efficacy didn't mean what I thought it meant. We start thinking that efficacy is a definition of a drug working or the drug's benefit. Efficacy actually refers to the population response rate. It actually answers a different question, which is how many people out of 100 met the description of the drug working or got benefit from the drug? And it's really a separate question as to, well, what was the benefit itself? And benefit is usually referred to as effectiveness versus efficacy. In this case, effectiveness would answer the question of, well, what does this drug do? For, for example, imagine that you had cancer and one drug could cure you of your cancer and one drug could extend your life by five years. So what's the effectiveness in this case? Well, the effectiveness in this case is that Exactly that. One drug increases your life expectancy by five years. One drug cures you. For most of us, probably we'd prefer the drug that cures us versus the drug that increases our life expectancy by five years. The next question would be, well, what's the efficacy? Or how many people out of 100 got the response of a five-year life extension in one case versus how many people out of 100 were cured in the other case? And one of the you know often misconceptions is that we assume that 
when we hear that a drug is curative, for example, that means it cures everybody. The answer to that is, generally speaking, that's almost never the case. For most of the drugs that we see, even the big blockbusters in oncology, you know, uh, for example, even the ones that are the new gene therapies and other things, generally speaking, if you look at durable response, it's rare that they hit 50% over the long run. And that would mean that on a good day, on a good drug, generally, uh, you know, 50-50 coin flip tends to be a really good response, which means one out of two people got the benefit in this case. That would have an efficacy of 50%. So it seems like we have these general terms like good response or drug benefit that kind of are a conflation maybe of efficacy and effectiveness. I'm just going to repeat what you said because then I'm going to have a follow-up question for you. Brace yourself. Efficacy is, as you said, like how many people is this going to work for? How many are going to have this baseline response? And then the effectiveness is, okay, well then let's define that response, right? So they, they kind of go hand in hand, but to your point, they are different things. If we're thinking about this though, like for example, let, let's talk about a specialty med. These are super expensive drugs, So there's definitely a cost consequence here, if nothing else, number one. And number two, a lot of these drugs have some pretty nasty side effects. I don't think anyone would disagree. So if we have a case where the efficacy is some lower number, but most people get side effects and the drug is always expensive... How is that contemplated? I think the answer to that is it's generally not factored into the equation. Because as you as you probably see and hear all the time, you hear everybody talking about drug efficacies, you know, and of course you want higher numbers or better. They don't really talk about effectiveness or what does a drug actually do. And they rarely talk about the harm or side effects of a drug. In some ways, if you've seen commercials on television, we've sort of grown accustomed to every drug is going to kill you because that's the side effect. It's like, well, every drug starts out with, and there are side effects that it might kill you, blah, blah, blah. And so after a while, we don't actually pay attention to that at all. At a population level, it's a fair question to ask. What's the benefit of this versus what's the harm in this case? A couple of terms you may have heard before, number needed to treat and number needed to harm. What those numbers generally refer to or number needed to treat is the number of patients on average that you need to see before one patient benefits. So if you had a number needed to treat of one, that would mean that 100% of the patients you saw would benefit. But if you had a number needed to see of 10, that would mean on average, you'd need to see 10 patients before one patient benefited. And in the same way, the number needed to harm is exactly the same thing, but it looks at harm versus benefit. You bring up a really good point because I can give you examples in the real world of oncology drugs, for example, where these are real drugs where the benefit or the efficacy is about two out of 100. By the way, we're struggling to understand, did they really benefit? But on a good day, if they did benefit, we're seeing numbers of like, which are two out of 100. But then if you go back and ask, which no one is asking, hey, but what harm does it cause? It causes grade three diarrhea in 100% of the population. And in this case, 30% of the people can't even make it through the therapy. So that would be that you took 100 people, 100 people have grade three and four diarrhea, 30 of them can't even make it through the therapy, and we end up with maybe we helped two out of the 100. And these are all FDA-approved drugs on the market. 
the NNT and the NNH from an economics standpoint, which is generally speaking, the standpoint that I come from, like the NNT was used in economic calculus. For example, if you have to give 100,000 patients the blood pressure drug or the statin or whatever to prevent one heart attack, then you add up how much does it cost to treat 100,000 patients, right? Versus how much does one heart attack cost? And you do that math and you can see whether the cost of the drug is worth it. So I think originally these terms definitely had economic utility. The one thing that I would say, though, is there was also a bunch of research that was done, psychological, where they showed people, so you said the NNT might be that you'd have to treat 100 patients. And if you treated 100 patients, two would benefit. So they showed people like an auditorium, a a blueprint of an auditorium. 98 seats were blacked out, right? Because those were the, the seats that weren't helped. Like if they gave that drug to every person in that auditorium, you could see that 98 would not be helped. And then they had two seats that had white white circles. Okay, so those were the people that were helped. They showed that diagram to individuals in some kind of research study. And most of the people said, oh, well, I would still take that drug because I think I would be special. I think I would be one of the the two that would be helped. So I'm willing to take that chance, right? Then they showed that same auditorium, but they flipped it. They said, okay, well, two of the people will die if they take this drug. 98 will be okay, but two of the people will die. And what the research study found is that everyone identified then with the They'll be like, oh, well, I will be one of the majority that is not killed by this by this particular drug. So it was really interesting how minds worked. It's like where you start out the conversation with the, but I'm special. And if you can imagine that as a patient, you're always thinking that you're a responder because I'm special really means that the assumption is, hey, I'm a responder, even if everyone else isn't. Clearly, as consumers, we all feel that we're special. But what about physicians? Because ultimately, these drugs are being prescribed, right? We can't self-prescribe. In this case, the question would be, as a physician, what's your obligation when you answer that question? You brought up the cost equation. And then societally, what's our obligation? Because, you know, all of us could agree that as individuals, we should be able to pay or buy whatever we would like. But if society has to pay for us, then it raises an interesting question of, well, what's society's obligation? if you will, to pay for things that, for example, either in this case, that harm more people than they benefit, or that even if they harm nobody, but the benefit itself, what does it have to be? And how many people have to benefit before we, a society is obligated to pay for it? I was reading something the other day. It was something along the lines of physicians will prescribe things because they, they like to give patients hope, for example, especially in the case of these oncologic treatments. But at what cost? If the cost of giving a patient hope is to erode the quality of their life vis-a-vis side effects, then... Even with that new Biogen Alzheimer's drug, one of the big reasons proponents kept citing for why they agree with the FDA or that the FDA was right to approve clearly a not super effective, efficacious drug with very dangerous side effects. The reasons they give is because we want to give patients hope. I kind of have to agree with what David Mitchell wrote on Twitter the other day, which is quoting, it's not the FDA's job to give me hope. It's the FDA's job to ensure that drugs are safe and effective. He said, I don't want drug companies to sell me hope. I want drugs that work. To your earlier point, when I interviewed Sunita Desai on the show a couple of months ago, and one of the things that she said is that physicians are actually better in air quotes consumers a lot of times than patients who are expected to be consumers, both in terms of making cost quality decisions and also sort of shopping. 
But I think that definitely plays into this. So, you know, the question is, is a little bit, what, what's the physician's accountability here and how are they looking at this? From a societal perspective, one could even ask the question of, well, you know, if someone has cancer and they're dying and they can improve their life expectancy on average by two months, should we give every person a choice of saying the drug costs a hundred grand a year? I'd rather write you a check for 50 grand to go enjoy the last few months of your life versus writing large checks to a pharma company in which you get no benefit. And almost every one of these drugs harms you. One could even argue that there's actually more societal good by writing checks to people so they can enjoy the last days of their lives rather than wasting it on treatments that don't work. Well, there is one big issue with what you just said, Promote. There's no rebates on that $50,000 check. (laughs) (laughs) So if we were going to talk about when drugs don't work, like, let's make a list here. So when drugs don't work, like there was a clinical trial and it showed some degree of efficacy. It showed some degree of effectiveness. Why in practice, you know, if we look at real world evidence, drugs never perform as well as they do in clinical trials. If we were going to kind of click through, thinking about this from the standpoint of, of society, thinking about this from the standpoint of maybe a purchaser, you got to understand what the issue is before we can solve for it. So why don't these drugs that cost a lot of money that I might be paying for, when they don't work, why? And for the purposes of right now, let's just ignore the whole accelerated approval thing. Part of it is a a mindset issue in that we tend to think of things as a binary distribution of it works or it doesn't, rather than real life is really a distribution where it works for some people, it works really well for some people, and it doesn't work for some people. And that generally, I mean, it doesn't matter what drug you look at, other than maybe there are a few things out there that fall, don't fall into that where they work extremely well for, you know, hep C drugs are a great example. The current generation of hep C drugs that have all have 95 you know, percent plus efficacy or works for, you know, can cure, say, 95 percent of the people or higher. That's unheard of. I mean, that's just an anomaly. If you look at most drugs, they tend to be the opposite. They only work for under 50% or most drugs are in that 15, 20%, even the big blockbusters. The problem with that is that that changes your default, the way that you should think. All of medicine today and the way we practice, imagine you go to your doctor. Your doctor almost starts with the hypothesis is that drugs are going to work. Drugs work. This is going to work for you and it might fail or you might have a side effect instead of drugs generally don't work for most people and it might work for you. Let's figure that out. So part of it is the default choice that we start with is often the wrong one. And so our whole model is based on the wrong default choice. We, we need to flip the default choice in this case to be that, hey, it's unlikely to work for you. Imagine that you took a consumer example of this and we're buying cars. We generally buy cars with the notion that, hey, cars always run. Imagine a world in which we would expect that the car that we bought on average would not run and we were going to pay 35 grand for it. How would we buy that car? Would we buy it in the same way if we knew that a two out of three cars wouldn't run? How would we buy a car in this case? One of the things on our list is that we may be thinking about this in too simplistic terms or being really reductive, that it is a distribution and we should realize this and, and actually look at the NNT and the NNH, like really understand what the efficacy and effectiveness in fact are. Is there any other reasons why a prescribed drug may not work? And I'm thinking about things that are involved in, in the longitudinal patient journey. Like, for example, what if they 
discontinued because of side effects or what if the dose is not adjusted or question mark? What, what are the other things? One could argue that ultimately you don't care why a drug didn't work, but some of those things are fixable or alterable and some of those things aren't. For example, you're a non-responder to a drug. Well, it doesn't matter what you do. You're just not a, you're a non-responder. That drug is just not going to work for you. That happens in a lot of cases for a lot of drugs for a lot of people. There's an interesting question here when we talked about number needed to harm versus number needed to treat. Number needed to treat has a very specific definition. What does this drug do for you? On the number needed to harm or side effect, well, there are mild side effects and there are serious side effects. And so depending on the side effect and depending on the benefit, we might do the cost benefit or harm benefit analysis and say, look, this harm is okay. For example, I have a mild headache. I can put up with that. If the other side is that I'm going to you know, potentially die as a result of a side effect, well, that's not a side effect that I would find acceptable. In those cases, you're looking at the ratio between what's the benefit versus what's the side effect. And so a side effect could cause you or may not cause you, for example, to complete or get the benefit of that therapy. Then there are other social factors like, by the way, it could just be that people aren't taking the drug. There could be a lot of reasons like that. But at the end of the day, on a $100,000 a year drug or a, or a half a million dollar a year drug, one could argue that it doesn't matter why if we can't fix the reason or get it to the point that that uh, it's effective for that person. Otherwise, you know, it makes no sense for us to spend that kind of money because the return is not there. I've heard it said that the most expensive drug are the ones that the patients don't take. You know, they're sitting in a bottle somewhere. If I'm thinking about this from a purchaser standpoint now, and you've been alluding to this through many things that you've been talking about. So I'm a purchaser. Obviously, I am responsible to foot the bill for these drugs that may or may not work. It, it doesn't seem like there's many of these cost-benefit analyses that are being done or it doesn't, it feels systemically like there is a fundamental naivete relative to a lot of the things that you're talking about here. If I wanted to do a cost-benefit analysis and really think through these things relative to how I was paying for the drugs, let's start with the analyses and, and then I'm going to ask you, what do we do with the information? But how would I even start to think about analyzing some of the stuff that we've been talking about? At some point, the question becomes, do we have any information, right? That's a fundamental question. Because without any information, it'd be hard for anyone to do anything. So this is all predicated on the fact that we had access to information. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. We had almost no information on cost-benefit analysis. Then we started seeing organizations like ICER pop up in the U.S., which are analogous to NICE and some of the other things, where other countries where they've got socialized health care have generally been trying to answer this question of cost-benefit. And, you know, you notice a couple of interesting things. If you've been following the press, there's been a lot of discussion about pricing in the U.S., based on developed country pricing, what they price the, uh, these drugs at. But people aren't asking another question, which is, well, how do these other countries price and why do they price in the way that they do? We always just answer the question of, well, they pay less. But we never ask the question, well, why do they pay less? Well, it turns out if you go back and ask that question, you'll realize that all of them do cost benefit analysis. They don't pay less just because they say, we're a country that isn't America, we pay less. They've actually gone back and analyzed that, well, what is the benefit of this drug? Does it improve life expectancy? Does it improve quality of life? How much? 
And then ask the question of, well, how much are we willing to pay based on that? Because they've done the cost-benefit analysis and come back and said, this isn't worth what the pharma company's asking for, and this is all we'll pay. Now we fast forward to the United States where we don't have that. And the best we have are sort of advisory organizations like ICER. And by the way, to ICER's credit, they have done analysis after analysis after analysis almost on every indication drug area that they've studied is that American prices and what we're paying for these drugs, that they are not cost effective, almost categorically. All the data tells us that these things aren't, every time they've been studied, we've got data that says they're not cost effective, but we keep paying the same prices. We keep doing nothing. Purchasers today, you brought up the term purchasers, I think that often we put the purchasers into the bucket of, hey, they really want to change the way the system works, but they don't have the power to do anything. And I would flip that and say, look, if purchasers in this country keep purchasing stuff when it isn't cost effective, it's sort of like saying, hey, the purchasers in America are fine with paying Ferrari prices for Hondas. As long as purchasers don't care and keep paying Ferrari prices for Hondas, what do you think is going to happen to the price of Hondas? They will become as expensive as Ferraris. Right? And at worse, we won't be able to tell the difference between the Ferrari and the Honda anymore. Because we're saying that, look, even if it's a Ferrari or it's a Honda, it doesn't matter. We'll pay you the same. And as a result, we end up with crappy drugs on the market that don't really move the dial. And we just end up with more and more and more of those on the market. And then we get to the point where we see crazy things like we just saw with the Alzheimer's drug for which there is publicly, every expert who's looked at it, all the data that's come back says, there is no benefit that we can even find for this drug. And it gets approved and suddenly Medicare announces the largest increase in premiums in the history of Medicare. And they attribute the primary factor is because of this new drug that has no evidence that it does anything useful. Yeah, that's a pretty stark example right there. Even now that they've cut the price of that drug in half and Medicare mostly won't cover it, this is still a how the heck did we get here moment. If anyone is interested in learning more about how ICER evaluates drugs, there's a show with Anna Kaltenbach that you can go back and, and listen to. Do you want to just talk a little bit about Vivio and what you're up to there? Thank you for asking. Our, our focus is really on, well, how would you solve this problem if you were to step back and say, look, I don't want to build a better health plan, a better PBM, a better whatever. We're to go back and ask the question of how do we get the best drug and the data in the most cost-effective way to every single member and patient and be able to answer the question of, is this person getting the most cost-effective outcome? Isn't that the question that we're trying to answer for every individual? So we built a model that said, look, we're going to start with that question for every single person to get cost-effective outcome, and we're going to work backwards. And so we built a model that basically allows us to do that because that is the fundamental question that we care about. It's decreased costs drastically. We have customers that have carved specialty drugs out of all the major PBMs, a lot of the health plans. And across our book of business last year, we saw better care, no restrictions on access, very counterintuitive, no formulary, but the costs were about, on average, about 40% less than what they were paying in prior years with the big PBMs. Our whole goal is to say, look, this is all about data. 
And if we could use that data and build an economic model in which no one benefits from people being on the wrong drugs or more expensive drugs or drug prices going up, we can build a better system. And that's what we do every day. And if someone is interested in learning more about Vivio, where would you direct them? Just go to our website, viviohealth.com or email me, promote at viviohealth.com. Promote, John. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you very much again for having me. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you do in educating the public about these issues. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.